0: This is Saving the Game, a Christian podcast about tabletop role-playing and collaborative storytelling. Recorded Thursday, April 20th of 2017, it's episode 109. In this episode, Cressy Woodward joins us to discuss visual character descriptions and clothing for our characters, plus apps to enhance tabletop role-playing, our new Weekend Reading series, Mystery Science Theater 3000, and more. Hey folks, this is the second half of our conversation with Chrissy Woodward about clothing and visual character descriptions. If you missed the first half, I strongly recommend backing up and listening to that first half before you continue. Without knowing what we're talking about knowing the premises that we set up in that first half of the episode, you're going to be a little bit lost. Also, for the particularly sensitive listener, be warned that as we start talking about modesty at about the 1130-ish mark, we get rather frank about human anatomy. Nothing obscene, of course, but very honest, as you might expect from a discussion about modesty and chastity across cultures and times. Anyway, enjoy the second half of our discussion with Chrissy. We certainly did. We could spend a lot of time talking about culture-specific costumes as well. This is one of those things where, especially in your game, this is just going to be kind of whatever. Religious influences, regional differences, gender differences, class distinctions. Gender is a huge one, obviously. We have very different clothing Mm -hmm. for men and women. Uh, But when those cross over, sometimes it causes controversy, sometimes it doesn't. Regional differences, aside from things like weather, uh, there's everything that goes into, well, I identify as this and you identify as that. This is our national costume. This is what I wear because it's really hot out. Or this is what I Mm -hmm. wear because it's
1: really cold out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What
2: do we want to emphasize about ourselves? What do we want to de-emphasize about ourselves? I had a friend who was in the Peace Corps in Africa, and she said that the women had these skirts that were made specifically to make their hips look larger. Hmm. Hmm. Because that was what was attractive in their culture, whereas here in America, we're like, does this make my butt look big? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
3: Yeah.
0: Vocational clothing, of course, some of this is class-related as well. And a lot of this comes back to class and money. Mm-hmm. There's a big difference between the vocational clothing of a knight and the vocational clothing of his squire and the vocational clothing of the guy who cleans up after the horses.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Something to keep in mind. Uh, religious yeah, Garb, we talked this about that. Is,
1: hang on just a second, because there's kind of a fascinating thing about the vocational clothing thing. So... This is actually applicable in the modern world, too, and you immediately think about things like a policeman's uniform or perhaps like a mechanic's coveralls when you talk about this sort of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But Grant, you've been in like software and doing tech support and stuff for a long time. Would you say that just by what the guy is wearing and what he's got in his pockets that you can spot an engineer with at least 70% accuracy by now? (laughs) No. No, I would not because I Uh, can, (laughs) especially not in
0: software. There's a very wide range.
1: Okay. In more mechanical industries, you can. Yeah, because the guy (laughs) is probably wearing nicer jeans than the guys that work in the factory. He's probably wearing a button down shirt of some kind. It's going to be clean. He's probably going to have at least two writing utensils on him, and he's going to be much more well-groomed and also probably wearing a watch.
0: Yeah, in our (laughs) in our company alone. There's a guy who comes in every day with a bandana, ratty T-shirt, and jeans or shorts, and there's a guy who wears a tie, and they're both engineers. Okay, well, fair enough. Now, having
1: said that, I can spot a sales guy at a mile away, <laughs> 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 and you can usually spot the executives a mile away too, right? Oh,
0: yeah. Um, sometimes depends. It depends, but usually,
2: yeah. But that comes down to who sees you. Yes. Do your coworkers see you? It's presentation. presentation. Or do- yeah. Or does the customer see you?
0: Yeah, I wear a Mm -hmm. t-shirt and jeans to work. Sometimes, if I've got a meeting, I'll wear a polo shirt. But I sit in an office all day and customers don't ever see me. Mm -hmm. There's no need for me to dress, you know, very nicely and uncomfortably. Whereas the sales guy needs to make a good impression.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I live pretty much my whole life in jeans and button-down plaid shirts, appropriate Mm -hmm. for the weather, because... Most of the time, those button downs have a shirt pocket, and I have found that to be very useful over the course of my various jobs. I have just gotten Mm -hmm. into the habit. Well, okay, so it's
0: funny. That kind of leads me to talk about technology, because technology changes what we wear.
1: Yes, and pockets are a relatively recent technology.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: Pockets
0: are. Buttons are relatively recent. And because buttons had to be handmade, often you would see buttons as adornment, not as function. We still mm-hmm. see this occasionally on like dress shirts. There's the occasional extra button for no good reason, but that's mostly just for symmetry or visual interest, not to say, look, I am wealthy, I have a button. <laughs> the buttons change how you can fit clothes. Mm-hmm. Zippers changed how you could put on clothes, uh, how you could put on shoes, what kinds of shoes you could make, that sort of Canadian
3: thing. Canadian invention, by the way. It's a Canadian invention. I just want to point that out. It's Go very Canada. important that I point that out right now. <laughs> They're a <laughs> Canadian invention. I
0: will, I will happily take your word for that. I, I have no arguments to the contrary. And hey, you know what? Let's give Canada credit
1: for that. Yeah, j- just another reason <laughs> to like your people. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, Velcro. Yep. Getting back to the cops. <laughs> yep, uh, I've been corrected. It's hook and loop.
2: Uh,
0: is what it's supposed to be called because velcro is a brand name specifically like kleenex or
2: xerox it it means that but technically it is hook and loop fabric so if you ever see Uh hook and loop fabric they mean velcro they just can't say it yeah Um, suspenders grant and i were researching i was researching suspenders we were researching suspenders suspenders. and the reason (laughs) suspenders started is because it was fashionable for men to wear their pants higher than a belt could hold it in place so they did suspenders. When fashion dropped the waistline of pants, we started using belts.
0: Mm-hmm. And suspenders <laughs> were actually uh, considered undergarments and not to be seen for a long hmm. time. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until really what the 30s, you said, that you started having mm-hmm. the guy you know wearing the suspenders over yeah. the shirt, you know, so you could kind of pop them.
2: Mm. And then once belts. <laughs> Belts came back in, suspenders became sort of a counterculture, you know, like the cool kids wore the suspenders with the tight jeans, and it was not <laughs> functional anymore, it was part of the look.
1: Yep. Mm.
2: Um, um, it's, interestingly, until that point, belts were originally just a decorative element on a military costume. Mm.
0: Technology is not just about you know, the clothing itself, but also what you need the clothing to do. I mm-hmm. need pockets all the time. I am always carrying around a wallet and keys, and a smartphone. Mm-hmm. That was not necessarily true in the past. But even, like, my nice dress clothes have to
2: have those things these days. And mm-hmm. you're carrying two or three or four or five different cards instead of a driver's license and some money in your wallet. So right. your wallet's bigger.
0: Wallet's thicker, so things have to be
1: mm-hmm. uh, Okay, thicker. so let, let me weigh in on this one, because I, I work in computer hardware instead of software. So every morning, as I'm leaving the house, I grab... Two ballpoint pens, those go in my shirt pocket. My keys and my smartphone go in my left front pants pocket. My wallet goes in my right front pants pocket, and then I clip three things to that pocket. I put a multi-tool, a flashlight, and a utility knife on there. Me coming home and, like, getting all of my work stuff out of my pockets and stuff is, like, a multi-minute process.
3: <laughs> it's like yeah. when uh, they ask the characters in some movie or whatever to leave all your weapons at the door, and it's just, like, a five-minute montage of them <laughs> taking <Yeah>. weapons <laughs> out of improbable yeah. places. Yeah, only with, like, it's tools exterior. that
1: are useful for opening boxes and working on servers with. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Likewise, though, I mean, Jenny, can you imagine living in Canada and not having access to cheap, waterproof fabric in the winter?
3: Oh, it'd be heck. It'd be so bad. Right. It'd be really bad. I've actually had to do that.
0: Yeah, or it's, modern, it's nice.
1: modern clothing insulation.
3: Yeah, no, it, it's very not nice.
1: Especially in some of the northern parts of your country, that'd be a good way to die quickly, wouldn't it?
3: Uh, Yes, Uh, that's why the Inuit people are really, really good at dealing with furs and stuff.
0: You're right. There are people who learn to live that way because that's that's where they survive. Mm -hmm. But modern clothing technology has changed a lot of that and made it much easier. You don't have to wear the same bulk of clothing.
3: Yeah, well... Sometimes you do.
0: Sometimes you do, but it's not as
1: necessary as
3: often. Definitely not. Because we have indoor heating now and we don't have to wear heavy coats inside all the time.
1: Yeah, that's Um, true. Speaking of cold weather clothing, have you guys ever seen one of those um, videos of what you have to wear outside in Antarctica in the winter? Where they're just putting on like these multiple layers of coats and gloves and stuff. Yeah. It's like, how do you move when you're done? Yeah. It's It's Um, tough.
3: My mom and I have actually been thinking of making like a brochure for how to dress warmly in winter on a budget, like a a shoestring, maybe a dollar for food per day budget. Mm. Um, Because those were the kinds of conditions that my mom grew up in. She grew up very far north. Mm -hmm. Um, And you learn to use plastic bags over your socks so your feet don't get frostbitten when you step in a puddle. Yep. Mm -hmm. You have to learn how to do that kind of thing. And um, we've been thinking of making a brochure on it. But yeah, the, the things you have to do to keep yourself warm in a cold climate are absolutely ridiculous. Also, before we get off of the pockets thing uh, too far, I would like to throw a quick shout out to a company called Pusha Posh, which which um, is a clothing company for women. I believe it is Toronto based and all of their clothes have pockets <gasps> so every single, like even they have sports leggings like exercise leggings that have pockets in them are they it's bigger fantastic. than just a driver's license size yeah they're like <gasps> almost halfway down the thigh oh my they're- goodness that's amazing I- I- so i know what i'm I getting like you from to like those day. in the show notes because it's a fantastic company that i would love to support a yeah. lot more do
1: we want to get into the whole like politics of pockets thing or do we just not have time here
3: We don't have time, but I would love to on a different episode. Well, let's
0: just say that, you know, who gets to wear pockets and have access to tools and what you're expected to carry is a big cultural question, right? I think we can say that safely uh, Mm -hmm. and relatively quickly.
3: Yes. Again,
0: if you're describing a character, whether clothing is appropriate or not says something. And this is less about what does this person present themselves as and more what is the situation?
2: This would be more of a GM tool, I think. Yeah. Yeah. If you stumble across someone in the woods wearing a ball gown and heels, obviously (laughs) they did not mean to end up in the woods when they left the house. Or they're a witch. Or Or they're they're a witch. Just saying. Or they're the good fairy fairy kind But but something is off. You know, if you see a man in a suit walking out of a burning building carrying a child, Mm -hmm. that's not where he was headed. He has no. dropped what he is doing because he saw something that made him change his plan for the day.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. We need to talk about modesty. And specifically, we need to talk about Venetian nipples.
2: Grant <laughs> <laughs> loves this little bit of clothing I do. errata. Okay. So <laughs> modesty changes with time and culture. And a thrilling example of this is that at a certain period in history, ankles were considered risque, breasts not so much. So Mm -hmm. the dresses would actually sit under the nipple with a bit of kind of lightly colored or sheer fabric ruffled over it. And some women would put rouge on their breasts so that they could be seen more clearly through this thin fabric. I believe some would actually dampen the fabric to make it a little more obvious. <laughs> and this was completely okay.
0: This is like Renaissance era Venice. And we think mm-hmm. of it as, you know, this very uptight time. And yeah, ankles, absolutely taboo. Hmm. The bust, eh,
2: whatever.
3: I mean, it's good for feeding babies with.
2: Yeah, and- It's a question of what is sexualized in your culture. There's a back and forth. If it's covered, it tends to be sexualized. If it's displayed, it tends to be less sexual. And, you know, we don't think legs are and ankles are that awesome because we see them all the time Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and if you look at the history of just the corset it's sometimes it's boobs on a platter and it's you know lifting them and displaying them sometimes it's compressing them and making it the female form as flat as possible and Mm -hmm. that shifts with cultural mores
3: yeah i know of a story where um there was a, I believe it was a UN delegation went down to a part of southeastern Africa. It, it was basically just like a great big get together with a bunch of white people and a bunch of local black people. And the women who were there had all their babies. Like it, all the women of the, the village there had their babies with them. And the babies were crying and crying and crying. And the UN delegation, were just, they were just like, dude, what's going on with the babies? Like, we don't want to be rude here, but like, what's going on with the babies? And it's like, oh, the babies are hungry, but we can't feed them. Well, why not? I mean, all all the women are here, right? And they were like, well, your women cover their boobs. So obviously you guys aren't used to feeding your babies (laughs) with, with, you know, breasts. So we didn't want to weird you out too bad. (laughs) It's just
2: very different notions of what modesty means. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I was talking to, um, one of the mothers whose child was in Rachel's class last year, and she was talking about how different it was living in South America with her first two children and then being in America for her third, because in mm-hmm. South America, you don't cover yourself when you feed your child. It's just, oh, my baby's hungry and everyone's cool with it. You just sit mm-hmm. down and you nurse your baby. In America, mm-hmm. people expect you to be like in a chair facing the wall with a tablecloth over your head. Yeah.
0: Yeah, if you, if you do it at all.
2: If you do it at all. I actually was mm-hmm. meeting Aaron, and I use a cover because I know that it makes people uncomfortable, and it is easier for me and more respectful, I think, for me to use a cover and not bother them than to intentionally or knowingly make other people uncomfortable when it doesn't mm-hmm. affect me much either way. But I actually I was nursing Aaron, and this woman comes over, and she pats me on the shoulder, and she said, it's so good to see that. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, I know that my mom had to cover me, not for modesty purposes, but because I
3: was the most distractible baby ever, and I would not, I would not let go if something caught my attention. If that makes sense, I don't yeah. want to like. No,
2: we're not going to put gonna... too oh, a graphic a no, picture I, there, but I just understand like exactly how.
3: Yeah, the the cover was like necessary for mom's comfort yeah. rather Fair than enough. other people's.
0: I, I heard an interesting anecdote years ago about a uh, Southern evangelical who went to Scotland. And this kind of gets into modesty, not just changing over time or between cultures, but also modesty being context-dependent, with a very conservative Christian family in Scotland. And now, down here in the South, your proper Baptist church these days is a woman in, you know, pantsuit or dress, and a guy in a khakis and a polo shirt, maybe a button-up shirt. Yeah. And, and that's fine down here. That's sort of expected. Whereas in Scotland... You had women in, you know, your full length dress going to church with her head covered because that was how you were respectable in church. That is how you were modest in church.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But of course, you know, in Scotland it was, oh yeah, well, you know, we'll have a beer. It's no big deal. Whereas this for this guy, you know, serving beer at the table at dinner was a huge thing. These questions of what's okay and what's not very wildly and aren't just clothing related, but clothing factors in significantly. Mm-hmm. We need to move on because we are running long. There are a lot of other things we could talk about, like recycling clothing, men wearing corsets at different times during the years, court dress and exaggerated clothing. One of my favorite stories is the uh, the 12th century fashion starting in Paris and you know spreading throughout all of Western Europe because Paris, even in the 12th century, was the center of Western European fashion, where men would wear shoes with such exaggerated toes that they had to tie them. Below the
2: knees. (laughs) 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 The pictures are glorious.
0: Yeah, they're great. But that's court dress because you're not actually working. You're just standing Mm -hmm. around and showing off in court, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, It's a lot of those same details we talked about.
2: The 1700s, I believe, the court dress for women became so exaggerated that the panniers on the side of the hips would reach out as far as her extended hands. And that's one reason you have double doors. It would take both doors for her dress to get through. And it was only worn if you had an audience with the king and queen. These dresses were specifically for wearing to the palace when you were interacting with the royalty. You would never wear them any other time.
0: So there's all the stuff we could talk about, you know, flower sack dresses mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, floral prints and that sort of thing.
2: Well, you know what flower sack dresses are, right? Another thing back from poor rural areas, when you went to buy your flour from the store, you would buy it in a huge sack. And the sack would be a calico printed cotton so that once you had emptied it of the flower, you could turn it into clothing for your family. If I recall correctly, that was a thing during wartime, right?
3: Especially?
0: Perhaps then, too, but Mm -hmm. also, even before then, it was just, how do we get fabric? Well, we're not Mm -hmm. shipping bolts of fabric out here.
2: Mm -hmm. It was also a way to get something to do double duty. Mm -hmm. Once you were finished using it as a sack, you could use it as a dress for your child.
1: Right. Why waste it? Mm Well, and didn't Mm -hmm. the various flower companies kind of compete on this because they knew that was a selling point?
2: Yeah, they'd have different designs. Mm -hmm. I just wanted this really cool... um, and it's actually not a lot of clothes and it kind of pulls into the next thing. But there's a particular Hindu holy man. He worships Kali, who is the goddess of, often a goddess of destruction and death. And they, More
0: complicated than that because, of yeah. course, it is Hinduism. <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs>
2: you know, this specifically, um, these holy men, they're ascetics, they live in the cremation area and they wear a loincloth and the ashes of the deceased on their skin and hair, and they drink from a, and eat from a skull. Wow. And is that not just the most interesting image? Yeah. And it only takes a little bit to describe it, but you can picture this person crouching in this field of ashes, holding a skull bowl and covered in this grayish mud. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And those non-clothing details add a bunch to a character, and they're very quick to describe. Remember, Mm -hmm. we're trying to talk about what goes into describing a character. This is one of the things that are a quick hit that's high impact. Hair, makeup, tattoos, piercings, any of those sorts of details. You were saying that, you know, you could kind of tell when a woman, like, learned to do makeup.
2: Mm -hmm. Women tend to do makeup the way they learned it for their entire life. So whatever makeup was in vogue when they were in their late teens, early 20s, and beginning to consistently put on makeup when they went out, is the way they will do their makeup with a little variation for the rest of their lives.
3: Hmm.
1: Why is that? Just habit? Or?
2: It's kind of habit. It's the look that you identify with your makeup. You know, When you do your makeup, you are going for a specific look. And your image of self does not radically change with time and with, cultural shifts the makeup that is going to be popular five years from now is not going to be the makeup i think of when i say i'm going to do my makeup because it's not the look i developed for myself
0: you ever hear a woman mm-hmm. talk about putting her face on yep yeah that's kind of that mental association
2: i mean look <laughs> at the way the older women do their makeup
3: yep very it's
2: effort. not the way people our age do makeup but they and they all tend to have a similar routine and similar shapes and colors that they use because Mm -hmm. that's the way makeup was in their youth yeah kind of goes to that
1: line from the matrix about residual self-image
2: yeah i know that i'm never gonna be as
3: focused as heavily focused on my eyebrows Mm -hmm. as people even like five years younger than me are Mm -hmm. gonna be because it was just not a thing when i was growing up like you'd Mm -hmm. maybe pluck your eyebrows Mm -hmm. but your eyebrows wouldn't be on fleek or whatever, yeah. they would just be
2: on your face. And when I was a teen, early twenties, very thin eyebrows were in. And so mm-hmm. my eyebrows were always very thin when I was plucking them regularly.
0: Yeah, my horrifying mm-hmm. caterpillary eyebrows still freak you out. I so. just
2: cry
3: at night while you sleep. I mean that's fair. <laughs> oh, my eyebrows my eyebrows are so terrible. They're awful. I, right. I will never ever touch them with tweezer. Except for the, the unibrow thing. So,
1: Mine yeah. eats small yeah. animals. <laughs> yeah, my my barber occasionally goes after mine without me even saying anything when I go in for a haircut. Oh no! <laughs> well, and, and, and haircuts,
0: right? Like Peter, yeah. when was the last time you significantly changed your haircut style? Uh, yeah, point. I made. don't know, seven, eight years ago, probably. You know, Mm -hmm. I've had the same part in my hair and hair that's basically the same style all of my life because that's just how I present myself to the world. The only time that changes is when it gets so long I can't part it on the side and I'm too lazy to go get my haircut, so I part it down the middle. And then after a while, my wife yells at me and I get a haircut. (laughs) But, I mean, that's
1: that's the only reason it changes. See, (laughs) and with me, when I have to start parting it, that's my cue that I need to go get a haircut. Yeah. Because I generally tend to keep mine very short.
0: The thing is, you can tell a lot by these details. We're kind of getting marginally off topic here. These details are very telling. How does somebody have their hair done? Do they wear makeup or not? What kind? Is it heavy and light, etc.? These are things that are subtle clues that people understand instinctively, and they can say, oh, this woman is probably of a certain age. This guy is probably of a certain class, maybe does a certain kind of general class of job. Oh, this guy's got piercings, you know, in particular places. He might be one of these types of subcultures, that yeah. sort of thing. This guy has a multicolored yeah. mohawk. Well, he's probably not a banker.
1: <laughs> Most likely not.
0: Uh, this guy's got tattoos. Well, that tells me something about him.
1: Mm-hmm. And these days it can just be generational because tattoos mm-hmm. are getting much more socially acceptable than they used to be. Sure. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, Well, in Japan, for a while, the only people really who had tattoos would be the Yakuza. And so there are laws and rules that people with tattoos are not allowed into the bathhouses. And Mm -hmm. my brother had a friend in the Navy, and he was stationed in Japan, and he could not go to a lot of the bathhouses because he had gotten a tattoo and he was banned from entry because he had a tattoo, even though he had no connection to the Yakuza because it was such a strong connection in their culture. I know that in Korea, there's sort of two parts to
3: Korea's tattoo culture. Historically speaking, tattoos were used as torture devices for Korean women uh, during the Japanese occupation. And um Today, tattoos are considered medical procedures that you have to go to the hospital for. And there's a really interesting article that I read about a Korean outlaw tattoo artist that I'll be <laughs> linking in the show notes because I think it's pretty cool. Well, show notes um, or our
0: weekend reading or something, because that sounds great. Yeah,
3: yeah. Yeah. Um, and and basically like kids will, will come home with a tattoo and their mothers will burst into tears. Because it's like, no, no, you've joined a gang. You've joined a gang. No, mom, this is not a gang tattoo. This is not gang related. I just wanted, you know, this little thing or whatever. But no, no, you went and did this illegal thing. And it's just a completely different culture surrounding the whole tattoo scene.
2: Yeah, I saw an article a while ago about... An indigenous people and the women would have their faces tattooed as a rite of passage and yeah. there was a you know language it was to the tattoo. it was outlawed
3: for so yeah so long and they're and now they're allowed able to, do to do
2: it again and they're saying yeah. like they feel like they're really connecting with their culture again because yeah. they now have the option to do this rite of passage
3: yeah and like they, they look like simple lines but every individual line has like a specific meaning to that person Mm -hmm. the tattoos are incredibly important to native culture uh especially inuit culture it's a very cool thing to to be able to see happen again
0: right and you're you're right that we're hinting at you know there's a whole set of things we could talk about with the meaning of individual tattoos again a lot of that is character dependent cultural dependent that sort of thing
2: and there's quality Mm -hmm. of tattoo is it a jailhouse tattoo with A ballpoint pen and...
0: A stolen needle.
2: Which I have seen. Mm -hmm. Or is it a high quality, professionally done tattoo...
1: That probably represents 20 or 30 hours of work by a highly uh-huh. skilled artist.
2: Yeah, hundreds yeah. of dollars. Or I know some people, I believe, go to Hawaii because some of the tattoo artists do traditional hand-needled tattoos. They're oh. not using any kind of tattoo gun. They have the traditional needles and they dip it in the ink and they do everything by hand. Mm-hmm.
0: Again, we need to move on, but there's a lot to this. There's so
2: much. There's so much. Yeah, we're talking
0: about how to describe people. Guess what? That gets complicated.
3: And hey, if you want to hear a lot more about this and see what bits we've had to skip over, you can back us on Patreon and get access to our show notes.
0: That's right. Um, One last word on fashion. It takes time to travel and is affected by politics. Those can be clues for where somebody's coming from in a game what their culture is like, that sort of thing. If somebody's fashion is 10 years out of date or a whole town is 10 years out of date, they are probably not in regular communication with important fashion centers, which are big cities, important political places, that sort of thing. They're probably off the beaten path. And you can quickly just say, yeah, everybody here is wearing clothing, you know, 10, 15, 20 years out of date. It's like you've stepped back in time. We just said a bunch about this whole town just by saying that.
3: Pretty good, (laughs)
2: dude. Yeah. What about Brigadoon? Oh, um, Brigadoon is a movie and the premise is that there's a town that only shows up every hundred years. Hmm. And isn't that interesting? The people in this town are wearing clothing that was fashionable two generations ago.
0: Right. Right. Okay, yeah, the the out-of-time, you know, fashion is certainly a a common, like, horror and mystery trope, right? Huh, that's Mm -hmm. weird. His clothing's from 300 years ago.
3: Why would that be? He's a
0: vampire. He's a ghost. He's a time traveler. He's a Renaissance festival worker. Oh, hmm.
2: okay. (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) The first episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Giles is like, okay, you need to focus and see if you can sense the vampire. And Buffy goes, found one. Wow. Oh, please. No one's worn collars like that for the last 30 years. He, only someone who just crawled out of a grave would look like that. <laughs>
0: there you go. And if particular countries start adopting other countries' clothings, that often indicates, or, or particular regions start doing that, there's probably a change in communication and change in relationship. There's cultural
1: cross-pollination happening. Peter, yeah, you had something there, about this. There will be linked in the show notes... Um, A very interesting article about denim smuggling that happened during the Cold War. A lot of normal people couldn't get denim over in uh, kind of the Soviet bloc countries during the Cold War, and they wanted it very badly because it was comfortable and durable. So Mm -hmm. because we're a little pressed for time, I'll leave you to read the article, but it is fascinating. Yeah. Last thing I want to, well, second to last thing I want to talk about this episode. We've talked a lot
0: about clothing and how we present ourselves through clothing and how other people can learn a lot about us through clothing. Here's the thing, though. God sees past all of that,
1: and he calls
0: us to do the same.
1: Yeah, there's a wonderful verse in uh, 1 Samuel where he's talking about the selection of David as king. And it says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Mm-hmm.
0: Likewise, uh, the verse that we read from James comparing the, the, the poor man wearing old clothes and the other man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes we are not to discriminate between those, you know, in church, we're all equal in life. We're all to be treated equally and to, we are to treat others equally. It's something that we are programmed socially not to do. And part of our duty as a Christian is to resist that programming and following
1: God's footsteps. And I think that's kind of one of the reasons why this topic was so compelling in the first place is because mm-hmm. kind of like we talked about last week with uh, or last episode with names, once you realize kind of what's going on with something, it's easier to acknowledge it and make conscious choices that disregard it than if you didn't look at it consciously. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, if I, if I see somebody who's wearing a ton of piercings and studded leather jacket and that sort of thing, I have a rough idea what kind of subculture they're in, right? Like a punk, goth kind of subculture, something like that. But knowing that I can, that doesn't put me off. It's like I identify it and then can move past that. Knowledge helps, you know, we, Christians are
1: never called to be stupid. No, (laughs) be wise as serpents and harmless as doves is an actual thing that Jesus told us to do.
0: So yeah, exactly.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: so knowing these things and being able to move past those, knowing that is very valuable for outreach, for ministry, Uh, for fellowship, whether at the gaming table or out on the street or in church, wherever it is, that's vital because clothing in many ways subdivides us. Mm -hmm. I want to say that I am this and I am separate from you. And we're all trying to be members of the body of Christ together. Variety is incredibly valuable. Christ makes use of all of us, however we are, but we should look past those walls that we try and put up. And in many ways, bring our own walls down and let other people in.
2: But you can also use the clothing to learn a lot about people and know Mm -hmm. where to approach them from. Uh, My friends and I joked in college that we all put out signs with our clothing and our appearance that allowed us to find each other because we all (laughs) had these little quirks to our clothing. And we'd be like, oh, that's part of my tribe. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. but. We also need to look outside our own little tribes, yeah, and that's what I'm trying to get, yeah,
2: but I'm saying you can look at someone and be like, "Oh, you know, they're dressed like a Goth, but I see they have a keychain that I recognize from something I'm also interested in. there's my in yeah
0: it's it's a point mm-hmm. to connect with, you know, oh, you were at such and such con. I see the t-shirt
2: mm-hmm.
1: cool,
0: mm-hmm. yeah,
2: yeah, I and mean, people will tell you a lot about themselves just by what they're wearing, yeah.
0: Uh, Okay, last thing for real, there are a few resources that I want to throw out there if you are trying to get character portraits, minis, and images made. Because to pull this back around to where we started, I think there is some value to those. My point is that locking ourselves into that is maybe not the healthiest thing.
1: But at the same time, you do kind of need to be able to tell the difference between the fighter and the cleric when you're doing the dungeon map. So you might as well get as close as possible and here's some places you can do it. Yeah. Uh, My favorite tool
0: for character art, because it lets me do it myself, even as a non-artist, is Hero Machine. There's two versions of this out there, Hero Machine 2 and Hero Machine 3. I'll link them. They're all kind of one and the same. Think of it basically as a paper doll character creator. Uh, It's sort of like many character creators in video games where you pick pieces to put on the character. This is sort of the same, but it's 2D. So it's like, I'm going to pick a face for this character and, you know, maybe uh, particular kinds of eyes and then color them particular ways. Okay, and now I'm going to pick these different shirts and I can just put layer after layer and change that, you know, transparency and color. Oh yeah, my character's got this kind of coat and this belt. and Okay, I want the belt above the coat. It's paper dolls, right? You're just putting pieces on and taking them off however you want, and you've got a pretty large selection, and it's super easy to use, and I love it. Generally, when I make a character, I make one of these because it does give me a starting reference. I haven't done it lately, and that might be telling because I think it's helped my characters a little bit, uh, or at least broken me out of the, the rut I was in in that sense. But if you need
1: one, and again, it's super for NPCs, and it's also free, which is wonderful. It's fantastic. Yeah. It's very powerful, and it costs nothing. Yep.
0: Not free, but really cool. Hero Forge, uh, which is custom 3D-printed tabletop minis. Make them yourself, design them yourself. Again, it looks like a video game character creator, like you know what you would get out of Champions Online or something like that, where you're building mm-hmm. your own pieces, and then you get it sent to you, and you get to paint it. I've never used it. Obviously, it costs money. But it's pretty cool if you need a mini.
1: Yeah, they do <laughs> have a pretty sterling reputation.
0: Or yeah. maybe a pewter one. <laughs> uh, no, I'm pretty sure it's plastic. <laughs> 3D printing. Art forums and sites, if you just need to find something pretty close, or a picture for an NPC, something like that, or you want inspiration for a character, there are a lot of good places to find character art out there. You know, DeviantArt, <laughs> ArtStation, all of those places where people post art. Tumblr.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tumblr is another good one. Like, if you just search emergency commissions on Tumblr, uh, you will find so many different people with a wide variety of art styles.
0: Yep. Reddit has any number of subreddits for this. Um, you know, there's the uh, Armored Women subreddit. The Reasonable Fantasy subreddit, one of my favorites, uh, because it's <laughs> you know
1: people in reasonable fantasy clothing. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know about this until you brought this into the show notes, and I'm looking through it now, and it's amazing.
0: Yeah, uh, the Imaginary Characters subreddit is great. I think there's also one that, uh, linked from Reasonable Fantasy that's like Impractical Armor or something like that, and it's probably as risque as it sounds,
1: but... And probably also is full of, like, bulky armor that wouldn't allow you to actually move as it sounds, I would imagine. No,
0: most of it is, you know, the chainmail bikini equivalent. Uh, But there is some of the, wow, that's just dumb. That wouldn't protect you at all. And that's also funny at times. But (laughs) there are any number of these, right? Once you get on one, you can kind of follow the link chain all the way around and find all of these cool sites, which have lots of good images. My one warning is try and credit artists that you're borrowing art from, uh, especially on Mm -hmm. the internet. People are posting this for public consumption, and that's fine in most of these cases. Obviously, that's very different from use this in my game book or some professional thing, right? Yeah. Very different matter. Follow all the good practices out there for using internet art.
3: Yeah. And if you do find something that you like and you use in your game... I don't know a single artist who wouldn't be thrilled to hear that you used it in your game. Like, like involve the artists, too. Get them involved, too. They will thank you for it.
0: Yep. And artists
1: are more than happy to draw characters for commissions.
3: Give them your money.
1: Yeah. 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 Please don't let them starve (laughs) because they provide a very valuable service to the rest of us. Yep.
2: Yeah. Well, there's that guy we met at the Greenville Con Mm -hmm. that had... Some examples of commissioned art he had done for different characters and different ideas. Yeah,
0: looks great. I still have his card on my desk, actually, because he's one of the people I need to reach out to, potentially, about artwork for saving the game. Oh. I started the process a little while back and then dropped the ball on it. Uh, and now that we have Jenny as well, it changes some of the, the art specs that I had sent out because there are no longer just two faces to caricature on things, that sort of thing. Mm. But, you know, it's something we got to work out. Even if you aren't going that route, if you have a mini, you know, if you can't or don't want to paint a miniature, somebody will be happy to do it for you. Mm -hmm. Go down to your local hobby store. Somebody will probably be like, oh, yeah, I can paint it for you. Or a friend can do it. You know, there are even people who paint minis professionally. You can send it off to them. They'll paint it and send it back.
3: Again, give them your money. (laughs) Yeah, And that's the thing. I am never a
0: fan of asking artists to do art for free. Mm
3: -hmm. For the
0: same reason, I would never ask Anyone to do any other professional service for free, except in incredibly extenuating circumstances.
1: Hey, I know you're a doctor and this person's bleeding to death. Could you maybe help?
2: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah.
1: things like that. Chrissy, can you sew these pants for me? You know,
0: uh, like the hem is torn out.
2: Oh, I don't know. What's in it for me? (laughs) i guess i can take a few minutes to sew your pants right
0: that that sort of thing (laughs) um you know i provide tech support for families for free that sort of thing but artists need to be paid just like any other profession and it's weird that we have this idea that they don't Mm
2: -hmm. so or people who sew Mm -hmm. it is a ton of skill and time and effort it is hours of work do not think that someone who sews can just whip up a costume for you yeah and I think that's
1: where we're going to have to wrap this up. We could talk for hours about this. We may have done so. Uh, Not quite. We're about 18 minutes shy of having talked for hours, plural, about it, but we should probably yeah. get out before we do hit that mark. Ah, tell me about it. This is going to be even worse to edit than the last episode.
2: I'm sorry. No, no, sorry. it's sorry. awful. I'm just really passionate about pockets. <laughs> 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 I'm just really passionate about fashion and all its forms.
1: That's gonna that's gonna go on the Twitter stream. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, good times. All right. Well, Chrissy, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate oh, of it. Of course, it was my pleasure. Yeah. I hope people got some interesting takeaway about ways to use clothing in their characters and to show character progression.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm sure they did. I certainly have, which is nice. Like just talking with you, planning this episode out, I was sitting here thinking There's like five things I need to do to bring this into my D&D game, because I haven't talked about any of this, and it needs to happen. Like, can anybody Mm -hmm. tell me what the NPCs in the colony wear? Nope. What they
2: washed up in? (laughs) Yeah, what does that
1: look like? (laughs) Hey, can anybody tell me exactly what Lambert's clerical garb looks like? Because I couldn't even tell you at this point. I think at some point
0: I described the halfling bard as wearing a breastplate. Like, that's the only clothing description. I think it was like a bronzy colored one, too. Something like that. Yeah. So, I haven't done that and it would add a ton of character. It's valuable and it brings a lot to the game. And again, it, it keeps you from being locked into that static perception. We didn't even talk about changing character clothing on a regular basis and you know when to do that and that sort of thing. We didn't talk about that explicitly.
2: Yeah. But, but it's valuable. And as your character's <laughs> progress and get more well-known or get more resources, they're going to
0: mm-hmm.
2: probably wear better clothing. Or it's going to be someone who absolutely doesn't care about what they look like. And that's telling too.
0: Yeah. And we're not talking about, you know, (laughs) hey, this suit of armor has a better bonus than that suit of armor. Right.
2: (laughs) Let's wrap this up
0: here. Chrissy, once again, thank you very much. Uh, If people want to find your public stuff on the internet, is there anything you want to share with them?
2: I'm occasionally on Twitter as d20mom. Depending on my mood and level of awake, I post snark and things about my kids. But yep. occasionally I also post <laughs> gaming stuff or whatever else appeals to me.
0: If you want to find a Twitter feed that's devoted mostly to the kids have done something crazy and Grant has done something stupid, this is your feed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> also, if you if you want just this wonderful dry snark about these things, that is really your feed. <laughs> it's pretty good. I love it. Um,
2: Thank y'all.
0: Anybody got any final notes?
3: You can't fight crime if you don't look cute.
2: <laughs> Branding right. is vital.
0: <laughs> Excellent. I'm glad we've got this out of the way. Um, something, I'm going something to stick sa- with my plaid shirt and jeans.
2: <laughs> you all have a good one,
0: folks. We'll see you next time. Yeah. Something something so, yeah. saving the game t-shirts.
2: Passionate about pockets.
0: Take it easy, folks. <laughs> this has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, share-alike license, Our logo is by Ruben Smith-Zemple of 3d6design.com. Our music is The Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at nihilor.com. To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, to connect with our fantastic listener community, or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, do good, and happy gaming.